with your host, Craig Allen. If you're tired of seeing the media cater to, from the far right or the far left, if you're sick of talking points from the extremes, if you would rather hear about ways America could get along, then you're listening to your new favorite guide from the political void, also known as the middle of America politics. Let's join our host for an entertaining look at politics. Here's Craig Allen. Welcome one and all across this great land. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. We are so pleased that you are listening to our seventh full episode of the show. We had a really long show last week in dedication to President Kennedy's death, the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. And you will see this going forward in our holiday broadcasts. They will be a little bit shorter the week after because we are going to spend time with our families. And we thank you for giving us that time. We thank you for your loyal listenership as our show continues to grow. And we also, frankly, thank you for inspiring us to keep bringing you great stories of our great land. And we have a wonderful show for you today. So stay with us as we discuss one of the greatest explorers in our nation's history. Without this gentleman, knowledge of the American West would probably have never spread like it did. Yet he met a very tragic end. And there have been some interesting findings surrounding his mysterious death and who may have been behind it. We will discuss this great American hero in the greatest American hero segment. And as our president is the oldest in history, many worry about how it would work should our vice president take over. Do you really know much about what the vice president does anyway? Well, we have all the answers. In our PolySci for the Normal Guy feature, we will talk about what happens with our vice presidents, what they do. And we will talk about one of our favorite subjects on this show, polls. No, not that kind of pole, not a fence pole or an electricity pole, but the one that comes in the uh, political kind, the ones that the president keeps sliding down on and sliding down on. And in our feature, what is the confection in our election? We talk about these polls and we delve into the most interesting piece of the confection in our election. The polls are consistently moving towards Republicans in general, specifically Trump in general. And can he pull off beating Biden? What is really behind this election trend? And is the vice president dragging Biden down? Or is she secretly helping him in some sort of way? We will talk about what has happened historically when some unpopular vice presidents have been pulled from a ticket or dropped by a president. And finally, we will have some fun at the end. We will catch up with our great announcer, Will Jay. We will ask about his holiday fun and catch up with his expectations for Christmas. So stay with us as we get political, at least a little bit. On Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. I am your host, Craig Allen, and we will get right into today's first topic. In our regular feature, Poli Sci for the Normal Guy, We will talk about the job of the Vice President of the United States. What do they really do? Our president is really getting up there, folks. (coughs) 81 years old, the oldest president in history. I remember as a kid them making fun of Reagan. (laughs) 
which is why this is an important topic to cover. The vice presidency has never really been as important as it is now because our president is 81 years old and maybe not in the best of health. It's kind of hard to tell, but sometimes doesn't seem exactly on point. The vice presidency has not always been a most sought after position. George Dallas, who was once our vice president, I know that probably doesn't ring a bell, that name, but there's been many vice presidents who are completely forgotten. He called his wife, by the way, Mrs. Vice. Um, He kept up his very lucrative law practice while he was vice president because he could. And he wrote of his job as vice president, quote, where is he to go? What is he to do? Nowhere. Nothing. (laughs) So he really didn't think much of his job as vice president. Teddy Roosevelt, when he became vice president, feared before he actually took office that, quote, he could do nothing. And as vice president. And when John Adams was vice president, he wrote Abigail about what he thought of this illustrious position, saying, quote, In this, I am nothing, but I may be everything. (laughs) (laughs) And indeed, that's where we get to Kamala Harris, our current vice president. She could be everything, but she happens to be, well, one of the most unpopular vice presidents in history, at least according to the polls. Harris is generally polling just slightly better than Dan Quayle, who is technically the most unpopular vice president ever. We will discuss some of the good and bad about that a little bit later in our program, so stay with us for that. But what about a vice president? What do they do? The vice president, first of all, becomes the president in several different cases. And that is probably the most important part of the vice presidency. The vice president becomes the president in case the president dies. And this is the most obvious. And the vice president is the president the moment the president's heart stops beating. There is no service needed. It is not after they take the oath of office. In fact, no oath is even necessary because they take an oath once they become vice president. And that is the only oath necessary. Oh. So they are the president the moment that the president's heart stops beating. In case the president is incapacitated as well, that's another point. So if the president has surgery, is put under anesthesia, is knocked out or passes out, or the big one, like in the movie Dave, if you've ever seen it, if the president goes into a coma, the vice president then becomes the president. And They stay the president until they resume their normal thought process, till they're able to be regularly back to normal. And if you watch that movie, Dave, the interesting part is the president has some issues and can't resume their normal thought processes. I don't want to give it away, but I do recommend watching that movie. It's a fun movie uh, with Kevin Kline. So that's an interesting case. The president also can resign. You betcha. It is their prerogative. It has happened as recently as 1974 when Richard Nixon resigned. He was replaced by Gerald Ford, the first unelected VP in history. And there's a whole story behind that I won't go into right now, but uh, Gerald Ford never was up for election. He had been put there by both houses of Congress after Spiro Agnew had resigned over tax evasion. But in any case, that's another way that the VP can take office. Another case is when a president is removed from office. 
And the 25th Amendment made allowances for this. There would have to be the 25th Amendment evoked. Let's say the president just starts saying crazy stuff or starts not seeming themselves. The cabinet members get together and say, something's not right here. The president's doing crazy things. There could be some mental illness involved. There could be an actual illness that's taking over the body, such as Alzheimer's or some other disease of some sort. They can take over and take the president out in that situation. And then also in the case a president is impeached. If a president is removed from office for committing a crime, a high crime or misdemeanor, as the Constitution states it, then the VP can take over. And we've had presidents impeached. We just haven't had them removed from office before. And that's two different things. A president is impeached by Congress, but then it's removed from office by the Senate. And that's two different movements. And they have to be found guilty by the Senate and then removed. There is another important job that the VP has. According to the Constitution, they are the president of the Senate. This job includes breaking ties in the Senate, counting electoral votes after a presidential election. There's some other formality duties where they can congratulate someone for doing something or give someone an office in the Senate. Yummy. The Senate, though, really regularly has a president pro tempore, which in Latin means for the time being. When the Constitution was put together, the framers thought that the vice president would just run the Senate most of the time. But as time has evolved, that has become less and less, and the president pro tempore really runs the Senate now, and the vice president only comes in in tie-breaking scenarios. That has happened, though, and it has happened more often than you would think. Why is there tiebreaker scenarios? Well, the Senate is made up of 100 senators, so you could have a 50-50 tie, or if there's less people voting, you could have a 49-49 tie as an example. And then there's the vice president to break that tie. This makes this a very important position in these cases. From 1789 to the 1950s, the primary job of the VP was running the Senate. However, with the ratification of the 25th Amendment in the 1960s and changes made to how the president sees the job of the vice president, that has slowly changed. For a while, believe it or not, there was even some argument as to whom the vice presidency even belonged to. The executive branch, which is made up of the presidency and the cabinet, they thought they owned the vice president. The legislative branch, which is made up of the Senate and the House, they thought they had (laughs) the vice presidency. And uh, let me just walk you through a little bit of what that means. The executive branch, they are the people who enforce the laws, and the legislative branch are the people who make the laws. And there is a separation there made by the Constitution so that we have two different things going on there. And after we made it through the 20th century, presidents began to shape the job of the vice president instead of having it just hang out there and just sit in the Senate. They began assigning them things to do, giving them powers, pushing them to get out the will of their administrations. From the beginning, though, there was arguments over whether the vice presidency should exist at all. Some thought that if a president died, we should just elect another one. (laughs) Some thought that tying the VP to the Senate was tying too much of the executive branch to the legislative branch. Look at the problems with Trump contesting his election and the pressure he put on his vice president to do something about it when he was counting the electoral votes. Perhaps there's an argument there after all. Mm -hmm. In any case, some vice presidents were very active in running the Senate at first, like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. However, many vice presidents in the 19th century failed to be elected as president. 
and that began to change in the 20th century. It practically started with Calvin Coolidge. He's really the first vice president that started to show some kind of power. He was the first vice president invited by the president to attend cabinet meetings. Vice presidents began to be utilized more by their presidents after this on Capitol Hill. Yes! They've been asked to serve on the National Security Council. They've chaired special commissions. They've acted as representatives to foreign heads of state as just one example. And they've been given special tasks by the president. A specific example of this is Mike Pence was asked to be given the enormous task by President Donald Trump of leading the coronavirus task force while in office. Lyndon Johnson was the first to occupy the executive office building and assembled staffs of specialists to extend their reach and influence. In 1969, Richard Nixon made a pledge to give his vice president a significant policy-making role for the first time and also give him an office in the White House. Walter Mondale established the tradition of having weekly lunches with the president. And there have been many active vice presidents since, although they differ in how they do everything that they do. And many have continued to be active participants in pushing out the agenda of their administrations and have only presided over the Senate on special occasions, such as the opening of a session of Congress when senators are sworn in to office or to break a tie vote. As our nation has become more polarized, this last bit has come up a lot more often. Initially, the vice president was a separate elected office. The framers wanted them to be elected on separate tickets. They would vote for a president first, and whoever came in second, that person would then be just the vice president. But no one thought of what might happen if the president and the vice president butted heads and had radically different politics. And so it went on for a while, butting heads. But after a voting fiasco in the election of 1800, the 12th Amendment was put into effect, which changed the way we voted on everything. And then presidents and vice presidents could be put on the same ticket. Still, presidents did not get to totally choose their running mates at first, as most parties did it. However, beginning chiefly with Abe Lincoln in 1864, presidents began to put some emphasis on getting their running mate chosen. He specifically had the power to choose his running mate in 1864. Still, it was a sporadic thing until 1940 when FDR demanded Henry Wallace be his running mate or he would not run again. And then in 1972, George McGovern's running mate had a history of illness and was found wanting. And when Jimmy Carter was being elected, he demanded his potential running mates be put through a significant vetting process so that the George McGovern thing didn't come up. And some of the same processes have been followed by subsequent presidents. Mm. By far the most powerful vice president in the history of the United States may have been Dick Cheney. With his knowledge of how our country worked, his knowledge of the Defense Department, his relationships he had built within the government, he may have had the most influential vice presidential position ever held. Yes. Obviously, with my joke segment named after him, (laughs) the least powerful vice president, and easily in my mind the worst to ever hold the position, is Dan Quayle. How he was chosen, I have no idea. He had little experience. He had so many problems with gaffes that I have made jokes about it, among many others. He publicly misspelled the word potato. He famously said, quote, For NASA, space is still a high priority. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) And he said, quote, 
The future will be better tomorrow. <laughs> That's a quote. At first, we had a few who ascended to the presidency. Then it seemed for a while we had a stretch. In fact, a 62-year stretch where no vice president was elected president. They were almost useless in a way. As the 20th century approached, though, the job became more powerful, and now we have a job that people seem to desire and it seems more effective. However, it's still just one heartbeat away from becoming the most important job in the world, which makes it very important who we select to put into this position. If Biden is elected again, becoming the first president elected in his 80s, how much more important does that job become? Can Kamala Harris hold on to that job? Should she? Should we have somebody else? It seems like we should put some thought into this. Ah. And we will discuss more about their polling and where this is going later in this episode today. But first, we will go into the woods. That's right. We will go into the West and discover who was one of our greatest explorers and help give rise to a United States joining East to West. So set your imagination into the early 19th century and we will go back to a place, to a moment in history when a truly great American set himself off on a journey, on a voyage that put him into the history books. Stay with us. Thanks again for joining us today. I love this country. I love everything about it. Yes. I love the fact that we have great principles that we are founded on. Yes. That we should live free from the tyranny of something such as a monarch. That we should have our own ability to govern ourselves. That we should be free to be able to branch out, explore, find our own place, our own niche in this universe. That we should be able to do what we want and that we should be able to find our own way through this world. And in this next segment, we find a guy who did just that. <laughs> Yahoo! In a regular segment, 
that we call our Greatest American Heroes feature, we profile Meriwether Lewis, a great explorer and a great American hero. He was born August the 18th, 1774 in Charlottesville, Virginia, and was born into wealth and privilege. And he was born, believe it or not, near Thomas Jefferson's estate of Monticello. And he was his neighbor (laughs) growing up. But he began to face hardships. As his father died in 1779 when he was, you know, just a tyke. And his father served in the Continental Army for the United States, fighting against tyranny. His mother, Lucy Merriweather, then married John Marks, and they relocated to Georgia. And there he learned to be a great hunter. In 1792, though, his stepfather wanted young Merriweather to get a better education, and they moved the family back to Virginia. In 1794, he started moving from education towards being a fighter, and he helped stop the Whiskey Rebellion which was a farmer's uprising against Texas. And everyone started to notice that he was becoming such a great soldier. The following year, he enlisted in the army at the time of the Northwest Indian War against Miami Chief Little Turtle and served for a brief time in William Clark's chosen rifle company. Now realize who that was, William Clark. Such a big introduction to history. And it was a monumental moment that would stick with him for the rest of his life. He advanced rapidly up the chain as a soldier from ensign in 1795 to lieutenant in 1799, all the way up to captain in 1800. And he served as an army recruiter and also a paymaster. In 1801, President Thomas Jefferson, saying that Lewis was someone he knew, someone he could trust, and he knew that Lewis knew well the frontier and was a great soldier. Also mentioned that, quote, Lewis was a personal acquaintance with Lewis arising from his being of my neighborhood, (laughs) asked him to be his personal secretary. But this lasted only two years until he was given a brand new job and a brand new task by Jefferson, one that cemented his lasting fame forever. He was asked to map a new portion of the still- fledgling United States. Jefferson had purchased 828,000 square miles of territory from the French known as the Louisiana Purchase, covering an area that is now parts of 15 states for $15 million. (gasps) We don't even know what we had at that point. And frankly, it goes down as probably the best real estate deal of all time. Jefferson decided to put together an expedition to explore what we had to see what was going on there. He wanted to send people that he could trust. Jefferson wanted to build trust with the Native Americans that were living there. He also wanted to understand the topography, geography, plant life, animal life, all the science that was behind it, as Thomas Jefferson was a really smart guy and really got into things like that. And after having Meriwether Lewis as a secretary for two years, he knew Lewis was someone he could trust and someone he knew could do the job well. He wanted to build a relationship with the Native American tribes and offer peace to them, but he needed the right man to do it, and he chose Lewis. He knew Lewis had a wide variety of skills that would serve the mission well, including the skills that he acquired in battle on the frontier. 
He knew he had intellectual prowess. He knew he could read and interpret maps, and he could also interpret books and other things, and was just the right person to take on the task of doing a wide variety of jobs on the trip. He then sent Lewis to Philadelphia to study astronomy, botany, zoology, and medicine with some of our country's best scientists, professors, and academics of the time. He allowed Lewis to put together his own crew, interestingly enough, to go on the expedition. And the first man that Lewis thought of was his old boss in the military, William Clark, to handle the military side of the expedition. Now, the interesting thing is when you put together an expedition like this, you want one boss, you want one person, especially from a military standpoint. Yeah! But the interesting part was William Clark was a captain and so was Meriwether Lewis. So what they did is instead of worrying about who outranked who, they just called each other captain. And they kind of co-captained the crew and co-captained the voyage, which was interesting from a military standpoint. And they eventually put together a group they called the Corps of Discovery. On January 18, 1803, Jefferson asked Congress for the money to send the expedition forward. There were many goals of the expedition and Jefferson felt confident that Lewis and Clark could accomplish them. He had hoped to establish trade with Native American peoples of the West. He had also hoped to find a water route to the Pacific, otherwise known as the fabled Northwest Passage. Jefferson wanted to understand basic scientific concepts of hearing all the stuff that was happening out West. He only heard tall tales told from traders and explorers, and he knew there was real things there, geography, plants, animals, and soil, rocks, weather, and culture of the Native Americans that he wanted to understand. And he knew that those differed from the East. He wanted to have a more thorough understanding of the land he had just purchased. He had literally just doubled the landmass of the United States, and it was his job to ensure that it was a peaceful and fortuitous transition. So on May 14, 1804, Lewis and Clark set off with about 45 men in a 55-foot boat up the Missouri River with the goal of reaching the Pacific Ocean and finding the fabled Northwest Passage. And they traveled nearly 8,000 miles total with the Corps of Discovery. The expedition encountered immense animal herds. They saw hordes of birds, hordes of plants, things that they had never seen before. They made many scientific discoveries. In fact, over 178 animals and over 122 plants that were unknown to science at the time. They ate well, consuming one buffalo, two elk, or four deer per day, depending on where they were and what they found. They were also supplemented by roots and berries and fish and things that they found along the way that both Native Americans and other explorers helped them decide on what to eat. They named new geographic locations after expedition members, peers and loved ones, even their dog. There is a creek that is called Seaman's Creek and Meriwether Lewis had a dog named Seaman and there came the name. They did experience some negative things though. They experienced dysentery, uh, many different types of diseases, tick bites, injuries. They were scratched by prickly pears a lot. But over the course of the trip, only one man died from the journey and I've been to where he died. The expedition held council with many Indian nations in which the Corps held 
military parades, handed out peace medals, flags, gifts, delivered speeches, promised trade, and requested peace between the tribes and the Americans themselves. One request, though, hit a snag. The Lakota in South Dakota already had British commercial ties and didn't see the Americans as potentially good trading partners. In fact, they thought it would make their enemies stronger to trade with the Americans. But the expedition looked like they were going to a battle. But diplomacy with Chief Black Buffalo helped in that. One interesting part of the expedition was that they took on a French man and his wife, Sacagawea, an Indian woman, and she became a part of this expedition. So did a man who was a slave by the name of York. Both became very much a big part of the expedition. When it came time to make major decisions for the expedition, such as wintering over the winter at a certain place, they gave voting rights to everyone. In fact, it was Meriwether Lewis who ensured that both Sacagawea and York could vote on anything that the expedition had to make major decisions on, including the overwintering decisions. And as the expedition came back, they helped make decisions there as well. They wintered near Mandan, but afterwards had a major difficulty in crossing the Continental Divide. In fact, Lewis, when he climbed up the mountain to look, he thought, well, I just have to get over this mountain. And then he looked across the Continental Divide and he saw mountains upon mountains upon mountains. In fact, he saw the Bitterroots and it frightened him. And he thought, oh man, we'll never get over all these mountains. But sure enough, they started to move over them, but they needed help from the Shoshones. And it turned out Sacagawea's brother happened to be nearby and he helped them get across. After winding through the mountains and nearly starving near the end, they finally came down from the mountains and they were able to befriend the Nez Perce Indians at the end of this journey. In late November, 1805, they finally reached the Pacific Ocean, not by water, but by water and land. So they never found the fabled Northwest Passage. They spent the winter there, trapped by storms and living on dried meat. In March of 1806, they managed to make it back to the Nez Perce, followed by a much faster route across the Bitterroot Mountains. After a separation on July 3rd, where several groups went slightly different ways, they arrived in St. Louis, and a grand reception was given to Lewis and Clark on September the 23rd, 1806, where Congress awarded them with double pay, public land. The captains each received 1,600 acres of land, and their men each received 320 acres. And Jefferson appointed Meriwether Lewis the governor of Upper Louisiana Territory and appointed William Clark an Indian agent. Some of the expeditions stayed in the military, others entered trading, while others just went back home. And the expedition helped map an enormous area that was equal to the size of the current United States at the time. And it laid down claims to U.S. territory in dispute at that time. And that helped America grow. Yes. And Lewis's governor was received well everywhere he went. He was a celebrity in some cases. People wrote songs about him, wrote poems about him, wrote stories about him. Soon, though, trouble began to follow Lewis. He developed a drinking problem. He began to have problems with what his friends called dark moods. Aww. In fact, Jefferson and Clark both were worried about him. And soon some of his duties as governor began to be neglected. 
And Lewis needed money, and he began a trip to see Jefferson to collect monies that were owed to him in October of 1809. And he was armed to the teeth for this journey for whatever reason. He had several pistols, a rifle, and a tomahawk. And he arrived at Grinder's Stand in October 10th, 1809, which was a boarding house run by a Mrs. Grinder. Her husband was not there. According to some, Meriwether Lewis had hired a servant to go with him. Others say he arrived alone. But during the night, Mrs. Grinder heard several shots ring out. She said she saw Lewis wounded, crawling around, begging for water. But she was too afraid to help him. And she didn't really have an explanation for this fear. She also described several other things she saw in the night. He died of bullet wounds the next day. A traveling companion buried him nearby as he arrived in the following days. Some of his friends had decided it was suicide, mainly due to his dark moods. In fact, uh, William Clark and Thomas Jefferson assumed it was suicide. But questions began to rise about his death almost immediately, giving rise to many theories. Lewis had given out his will in case something had happened to him before he left. It had been reported he had tried to kill himself several weeks earlier. His friend, William Clark, wrote of him that, quote, his mind had overcome him. Yet it does not exactly make sense why he would travel to such a strange place and kill himself in the way he did. He was having monetary difficulties, but he's on his way to Washington to solve those. He had been suffering from alcoholism, and some say he had acquired syphilis or malaria in his travels. This could have led to bouts of dementia, but still doesn't quite explain the situation because no one had seen some of this in the days prior. There was some talk that he quietly felt like a failure. Despite having led the Lewis and Clark expedition to such a success, they did not find the fabled Northwest Passage. Some said he quietly harbored feelings of sadness and emptiness, and there was a failure about this. Yet he was an expert marksman. He was a woodsman. He could shoot anything, anywhere. How could he not shoot himself? How could he not kill himself correctly? How could a man who was so heroified where he went and had songs written about him and it was such a great governor at the height of his career kill himself? <gasps> Some theorize that maybe bandits killed him in the night or tried to kill him in the night and he fought him off and maybe he died from the wounds. There were many bandits roaming throughout this territory at the time. Others say Mrs. Grinder herself may have killed him, realizing that he had a bunch of stuff with him and money and who knows what else and... Her story doesn't quite make sense when you try to put it all together. Ah. We now know, looking back at the lunar calendar, that on the night that she described everything, that there was no moon, that it was a moonless night. It was black, pitch black outside. So how could she have seen all the things that she claims to have seen? And there was a corrupt general named James Wilkinson. And I don't have time in the podcast to dig into all of the things that James Wilkinson was into, but he's into a lot of bad stuff. And he may have attacked him during the night. <gasps> Meriwether Lewis's own mother believed he was murdered, and she said this from the time that the murder occurred. And later on, Tennesseans exhumed his body, and in 1840 had a doctor look at his body. And the doctor said he was probably murdered. <sighs> Many mourned his death, perhaps not many more than his dog. According to one account, his dog, Seaman, was so heartbroken, he refused to leave his grave. 
friends and other Tennesseans visited and then finally in 1840 erected a monument there, which is marked by the fact that it looks broken to reflect a life lost early. I have been to this marker along the Natchez Trace. I would recommend you going there. The day I arrived there was a cool, crisp morning and the fog whirled all around me and I saw the marker and I looked around at the beauty of the area and it made me think of Lewis and all that he had accomplished with his expedition. And it made me think of America at its newest, America at its finest, America at its earliest hours. And it made me think of what was to come. But as the fog lifted, it turned and became beautiful. I felt there was still the spirit of America urging us on at this marker, not from a fallen man, but from a man of his time, a man who had been through a thing more than most of us will ever go through, both physically and mentally. From his experiences losing his father, to his trying times as a soldier, to his harrowing death defying trip through a completely now lost part of America. We should thank him for what he did. He helped unite our country. But thanks to him, we can also look back and see what it once looked like from the animals and plants to the people. We can see his kindness towards all and his respect for nature and his fellow man. Yes! We should all be inspired in the same way today to have respect towards those we do not understand but want to communicate with. We should start with trying to reach out to them peacefully first. We should start with love, not hate. That's what Meriwether Lewis did, which is why I consider him a great hero, which is why I consider him a great uniting hero in our country's history. Next, we will talk about polls and the election coming up. Biden is sinking in the polls. Is Vice President Harris pulling him down or helping him out? We will discuss. So please stay with us. Coming up next. back and we are cooking up something great for you this week even though i guess thanksgiving is over but we are cooking up something great anyway and we have a confection for you that is a confection in the election segment as we get past our thanksgiving holidays and i hope you all got to enjoy some good food some good fun some good family time we're going to get back to confections That is, we're going to look at the confection in our election. What is one of the confections in our election, and it is always a big one, is polling. (laughs) 
and we've talked about pulling before, but here's an interesting look at polling that I've seen lately. Biden's polling numbers are dropping significantly. In fact, <coughs> Trump is surpassed Biden in many states that I did not think he would surpass him by. And then he's catching up to him in some states like New York, where I never thought he would even get close. Ah, and so guy. what is happening? What is causing this? In our confection, in our election segment, we're going to talk about Biden's poll numbers plummeting. And is Vice President Harris helping him? or hurting him. In a recent poll among young people, 46% of those polled said they would vote for Trump and 42% for Biden. That's right. Don't clean out your ears. You're hearing it right. Not since Reagan in 84 have I seen a poll like this for a Republican. Now, this could be a bit of an outlier, but it also shows a trend that I see in polling. And how does our vice president, Kamala Harris, fit into this poll as she generally polls better with younger voters? Well, let's look at her own polls first. In the approval range, she is polling at 37% favorable and 55% unfavorable in the real clear politics average of polls. Biden is currently at 40% and 55% respectively. That is not good, <laughs> especially when I look at a recent Harvard-Harris poll that shows Donald Trump at 51% approval and 44% disapproval. <gasps> now, this is an outlier poll for Donald Trump as it's not hitting his overall, but it is trending the other way for Donald Trump. And it is not trending that way for our president and vice president. I see Trump pulling ahead in many states. He's pulling ahead many general election polls. He's up five, six, seven percent ahead of Biden nationwide in many of them. He is ahead by 12 in Ohio, by 5% in Michigan, by 10 in Florida, by 8% in Arizona, by 7 in Georgia, and by 3% in Pennsylvania and Nevada, Ooh. as well as an amazing 9% in North Carolina. Surprise! At this point, I see no way Biden wins if the election were held tomorrow. We are still nearly a year away from the election, but again, if it were held right now, there would be no way Biden would win. If Biden's popularity is dropping, others we can look at, like... Vice President Harris could be there to pick up the mantle, but could she <laughs> if he falters, if something happens to him, or if he perhaps drops out of the race for health reasons, then what do we look at? If the Democrats are looking at Vice President Harris, she is the most unpopular overall versus Biden. She is not helping him at all. How about her demographics? Is she helping with any certain demographic or any certain type of person or whatever? Generally, she does better with women, people of color, particularly African-Americans and those with more education. Oh! Although approval numbers with every single one of those groups is dropping. Most of it is due to her handling of the border. This has really hurt her numbers. Mm. Interestingly enough, the greatest hit has been with Hispanic voters who largely want the border situation fixed. Yes. So could Biden dump Harris from the ticket? Ooh. It has happened before. Some examples. John Garner was dropped by Roosevelt in 1940. Garner was far more conservative than Roosevelt, and this is the main reason for the difference here. <laughs> he chose a guy named Henry Wallace, who he dumped again <laughs> for Harry Truman. <laughs> so dumping a VP is a thing that does happen, and it has changed history. In order to win re-election in 1864, Abe Lincoln dropped Hannibal Hamlin. Oh. How did this happen? Well, he thought that in order to 
get himself reelected, he had to choose Andrew Johnson from the War Democrats, and the rest is history. Because Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, Andrew Johnson became president, it made Reconstruction go rougher, it changed the way our country's voyage went into the future, and it changed everything. Just that one little choice. Aaron Burr was also asked not to run again with Thomas Jefferson Ah. after he shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. And there's a famous musical about it, if you don't know, called Hamilton. Among many other issues with Burr, Burr had lots of problems going on (laughs) while he was vice president the first time. So we've had a history of interesting removals of VPs. It certainly wouldn't be the first time a VP has been removed, and it won't probably be the last time. So could it be done? If Biden chose to choose someone more trustworthy, would it instill more trustworthiness in him. Biden is now only seven to eight points ahead in New York, 10 points ahead in Washington, and a mere 13 points ahead in California in recent polls. He won New York by 23 points the first time. He's down by three times as much now in New York. It's a stunning number to me. In California, he won by 31, and in Washington, he won by 20. He's down by huge numbers in those states. He also won Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia, and he's behind in those states now. (gasps) So where could this go? Could Democrats go with a new ticket altogether? Just pick both of them, throw both of them out. There are Democrats running against Biden like Dean Phillips. Perhaps he could make a good vice president candidate for somebody, or maybe he could pick somebody, a strong person to be vice president, and that could push him over the edge. Mm -hmm. But there's another guy running out there that I think he's really running for 2028, but he could sneak in here. And that is California Governor Gavin Newsom. He's been to China recently. He's done some things that have gotten him some internet attention. And I think that this is a guy who could be a good Democrat bet. Newsom is a social liberal, but he's a businessman with some aspects that make it appear that he leans more to the center or even to the right on economic issues. He could be very appealing to young voters. Whether the Dems make a move or not, Biden appears to be staying. There appears to be no conflict within or whether Biden wants to be president again. He does. He, he, He sees himself as being president for the next four years. Yes. He sees himself as helping the country. He has governed center left and he feels like that makes him a good fit for this country. Whether the Democrats nominate him or not, only time will tell, but I am beginning to we doubt it. Ho, ho, There's ho. too much doubt in the minds of voters about his age, about his gaffes, about his ability to know what he's talking about, about his falling or tripping or seemingly knowing where he is sometimes on stage when he's taking the stage. I feel like he should move aside. I do not believe he will, though. Will the Democrats make a move? Oh, the drama. The polls may push him to the side, but it also may push the Democrats to push him to the side and bring in someone new. Ah! How interesting will this get? Will they push Harris out of the way and bring in a new VP? And if they do, who will that be? Excuse me. I don't see anyone on the horizon that could replace her in the way that they need. But could someone jump up there? Could Dean Phillips be the person to do it? This could get interesting. And now let's catch up with our beloved announcer, Will J, 
and find out how his Thanksgiving holiday went. What will he have to say about it, as well as his great Christmas that he has planned for himself coming up? In this next segment, what's up with Will J? Jay, we're back with you here to talk about some of your holiday fun. You just had Thanksgiving, didn't you? Yes. Did you enjoy your Thanksgiving? Yes. How was your Thanksgiving? Where did you go? Well, I went to my grandma and grandpa's house way up in Dallas, Texas. Oh my goodness, and did you do anything special up there? Yes, I had a bunch of turkey and pies. Hmm. Oh, uh, some games. Did you do anything special with Grandma and Grandpa? Yes. It, uh, I helped cook Grandma. Ooh. And Grandpa played with me. He did? Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Um, what is your favorite food to eat at Thanksgiving? Not turkey. It's not turkey. It's pink stuff. It's pink stuff. <laughs> Holy cow, pink stuff. And uh, let's see, did you eat some turkey though? Yeah. You did, okay. And do you like to watch Thanksgiving movies or TV specials? Ooh, yes, I like to watch Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown is your favorite? Yes. Okay, and do you like any others? Mm, yeah. Which ones? Okay, let's change over to Christmas now. Let's talk about your Christmas that's coming up. What is your favorite part of getting ready for Christmas? Decorating for Christmas. Decorating the house? Yes. And anything else? Do you like doing anything else for Christmas? Yes, I like hanging ornaments on the Christmas tree. And what do you like to do to get ready for Santa to come to your house? Well, I put cookies and milk out on a plate. Mm. And then I normally put carrots out for the reindeer. And do the reindeer eat the carrots? Yes. And do they like them? Hmm. I never thought about that. Did they leave you a note? Never. Never. But we'll have to see if they ever leave you a note and say thank you. What is your favorite Christmas tradition? Hmm. Bringing presents. Bringing presents? Mm-hmm. Bringing presents to Jesus, baby no, Jesus? Like, or? like, uh, like putting presents underneath the Christmas tree and opening them up. Oh, okay, yes. So like in the tradition of when the wise men brought presents to baby Jesus, right? No, 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 no. Like put a tree, presents underneath the Christmas tree and open them up to see what I get. Oh, okay. Well, Will J, I'm so glad you joined me here for What's Up with Will J. So glad to know you're excited about these holidays. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Christmas coming up or anything else you'd like to say about your Thanksgiving that you enjoyed? Well, my Thanksgiving was pretty good. I liked it. 
and all the pies were delicious and everything was delicious. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for joining us and we will get to uh, more of What's Up with Will J maybe after the Christmas holidays. And that's our show for today. Hope you had some fun. Please let us know what you think by telling us about it. Just go to our Facebook page and drop us a line. It would be oh so very nice to hear from you and perhaps just write some comments and tell us about it on whatever platform you catch us on. You can hear us on Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Boomplay, iHeartRadio, Player FM, and Podchaser. And go out and tell someone that you heard about us and send them a link. Now, have you ever wondered what would happen if more than one leader was to be, say, caught in a scandal and could not fill their leadership positions in the presidential succession of, say, vice president and president? Just how far does the line go down? Well, we will talk presidential succession next week in our regular segment of Poli Sci for the Normal Guy. And in honor of Pearl Harbor Day, we will highlight another great American military veteran in our Greatest American Hero segment. This veteran was one you may not know and realize was essential to our Allied response to Pearl Harbor, and yet became one of the greatest military recruiters for the military in the 20th century. Yet he was also one of the greatest actors in American history. Are you curious? Join us next week to find out who this person is that we are talking about. Well, that is all we have for the show for today. Thank you again for stopping in on this platform and look for us again here. Yes! I want to thank Will J for his participation in the program today. Mark A for his editing skills and KB for her help with production. You've been listening to Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. This is Craig Allen, your host. Join me again next week for another entertaining look into the world of politics. Politics.